All right, you guys, before we get started with today's episode, we do want to take another second and remind you that for a few more days until Sunday, August 20th, we are in the running to present on the South by Southwest stage. If you are familiar with South by Southwest, you know this is a really big conference um, festival in Austin. Huge attendance, really big opportunity for agriculture to get on the main stage with producer voices being led by Tara and I. So before today's episode starts, if you have a second and it is before August 20th, please click the link in our show notes and vote for us to get on that stage. Um, It'd just be really great. I don't think we can stress enough how thankful we are to all of you who have voted. Uh, You can leave comments actually on um, the presentation or like the information about our panel. And it's been incredible to see all of your guys' comments. So we are just so incredibly thankful for the votes we've already received. And for those of you that we hope are going, clicking that link in our show notes and voting today, it would be really something I don't even think I can totally put into words what it would mean to Natalie and I to be able to get on a stage like South by Southwest and be able to share from a farmer and a rancher perspective about food and agriculture and where our food comes from and and really being able to just showcase agriculture in a unique light as Natalie and I try to do every single week here on the podcast. All right, let's get into our episode. Welcome to Discover Act, brought to you in part by Case IH. I am your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I am your other host, Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And we are here again this week to bring you the top three articles in the ag and food space. We had some really good ones this week, as I always think we do. Um, but we do this every week so that you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. The last few weeks, we have been very different vibes as far as our clothing goes. And today we picked the same outfit. I'm shimmying into the camera, a little shimmy shake. We are wearing some Discover Ag apparel, which you guys have been asking for apparel. And it is very much so on the forefront of our mind. It's just, I think, something Tara and I want to make sure we do really right. And so we have been curating a Pinterest board. We've been talking about ideas and things. And we promise it's coming your way. Eventually, we just you know, we want it to embody us and and the disco community. And so we're going to do it right. So just, you know, what's that saying? Patience is a virtue. Yeah, we're working on it. How was your weekend? What's the new in life? Not a ton. It was really good. Uh, Jack starts school this week. So I feel like we just wanted kind of a mellow week before we send our middle kid off to, you know, the world of kindergarten. So yeah, it was really great. Nothing, nothing major to report on, but really enjoyed and I think really needed by our family. I feel like I'm entering a new phase of parenting. Daniel and I have talked about it. It's been happening slowly over the summer. And this weekend, it was like in full force. I feel like I'm in the phase where Guinevere just wants to leave us 100% of the time. Like she's like, oh, there's a cousin. Bye. And like, I'm like, this is Friday night. I'm like, Saturday morning. Can you come home yet? No, I'm actually like, now I'm going with grandma. And I'm like, seriously, can you just come back to us? And like on the lake, it was like boat hopping over to other people's boat. Like she just was like, I've got places to go, people to see. And I just um, miss having my child around. Yeah, I'm always an advocate for not mourning like the, you know, growth of your children. Because I, I do think I've talked about this before. We tend to do that as parents. Like we get so sad as they get older and independent. And, and it does hurt us, right? Like you said, I trust me, I, I have a teenager. I'm fully aware of the pain it can cause you when your kid <laughs> wants to be somewhere else and not at home. Um, but it is really hard. And as much as I'm an advocate for like, you know, thinking about all the positive things that come with and which I talk about all the time, like getting to experience things with your children and, and doing things with, as they age that you don't get to do when they're little. Um, 
it doesn't mean it's it's not it hurtful. It, it lack of better words, it sucks. I know. I'm like, how do we be like the cool house where they want to come to our house? I was like. I felt like the mean girls thing that was like, I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. And I was like, how do I be the cool mom? Um, I don't know that that's in my future. But yes, it's been weird. It's interesting that you talk about that because that is one of the downfalls I have come to recognize about being the family that lives out of town. Kids don't want to drive out of town. Parents don't want kids driving 10, 15 miles out of town to hang out. And so as much as I had the same mentality where I was like, I'm going to do everything to be the cool fun house where Tad wants to bring his friends here and they're hanging out here and not, you know, going elsewhere where I don't know where they are, what they're doing or what those household rules are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, I 100% agree. I lived about 25 minutes from my high school and I remember like um, going after school to a girlfriend's house because like for cheer, we would have a game later. Well, there wasn't, it was like an hour between school and a game. I can't drive 25 minutes home and then 25 minutes back. I would have been home for 10 minutes maybe. And so I do think that's a challenge. Like you had to have friends who were like in town where you could go and like change and eat lunch and, or eat like dinner before a game or whatever it was. And so that is absolutely like a rule barrier, uh, for rural parents, rural kids. So speaking of games, this is the last thing we'll talk about before we dive into the articles. But um, I was thinking about this the other day and it's kind of funny that you brought up. It just made me think of it. It triggered me when you were talking about games. I have this weird quirk and I'm very curious if this quirk is more common than I am aware of or where I guess maybe listeners follow on fall in this and where you fall on this. But I think there are two types of people when it comes to events like games and sporting events. Um, I was thinking about this like the Omaha Zoo when we were there the other weekend they're the type of people like myself who will see that there's like two minutes left in the game or or at the concert. When Tad and I were at the concert, there was the last song. And I was like, should we just skedaddle now so that we can beat the crowd out? <laughs> and then there are the group of people that want to leave. They don't want to miss a single thing. But my family, I very much so grew up in a family that was like three minutes left in the fourth quarter. We're out. Like we're beating the traffic. We're getting out of here. I feel like it really depends what it is. I feel like this happened to Dan and I recently and we were like, all right, that's good. We're out. So I think it would depend. Like if it was, you know, tied in the fourth quarter, I'd be like, all right, we're staying. Or if it's a concert I really love, heck no, I'm not leaving till after encore, like absolutely staying for the encore. Um, but it just depends. Otherwise, I mean, if it's kind of like, Meh, well, that's probably all there is to it. Uh, Daniel and I actually did that during, oh, this is what it was. It was the Indy 500 parade. We went downtown and did it and watched it. And then it was like, they were like, you know, however many, parade things left like floats were left and Dan was like oh, sounds like a great time to get back to the car I was like totally agree I'm good on the last five cars don't need to see them our family has missed multiple major like gone into overtime had to listen to it on the radio because we, we like left in the car so I'm curious you guys let us know tag us where you fall on that like is it more common to stay for the whole event no matter what or is it more common no matter what, to leave, to save that time, to beat the crowd. All right, you guys, diving into the discovery word of the week. It is sojourn, a temporary stay or short visit. The example sentence is, I can't believe I managed to book a last minute sojourn to a summer house in Hampton this weekend. Sojourn? Mm-hmm. Say it again. Sojourn. Sojourn. Hmm. Interesting. I did not know my face. If you guys could see my face, I did not know what direction that word was headed, if I'm being honest. Um, but that's kind of cute. I like that. The travel junkie in me is always trying to plan a sojourn. Mm-hmm. I'm currently planning a sojourn that my husband doesn't know about yet. So everyone say a prayer for me. Maybe one for him, too. 
I feel like we could use it with articles like a lot too. Like we're going to take a little sojourn into the world of mariculture, you know? I have to say though, I'm really excited that you guys are embracing the discovery of the week, the word of the week. We had Miss Alana. I hope I'm saying your name right. I don't know if it's Alana or Alana, but you left us a review and you used the word affable in the review. And that is so affable of you to use the word affable in the review. It just, look at us. We're out here living our best, you know, articulate life. We're expanding our vocabularies. It's just, it's the disco way. Thank you all. A disco after my own heart. Speaking of a sojourn, you know, um, articles, we have really been sojourning to the sea lately. So I think we should get into our next sea article. Absolutely. I love our articles we picked this week. Oh, me too. We need to leave a lot of time for the last one. Do not. This is not an episode where you want to like cut out early like Natalie. You want to stay to the final fourth quarter or third. I guess it'd be third quarter in this because that final article, gosh, it's one. It might be one of my favorite articles we've ever covered. And I know you said that recently. I've never said that about an article, but this is like I think this might be like top five for me. So. Before we do that, though, I want to thank our sponsors, uh, our sponsor, Case IH. So Discover Ag is brought to you in part by Case IH. The men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. All right, you guys, first up, what you need to know in the world of ag this week, title Alaska's newest gold rush, seaweed. Uh, This was not a news piece. It was actually more of a highlight piece, and it dove into mariculture, which is the act of raising sea plants and bivalves. Um, In this case, article specifically centered around kelp, and I have to say it was absolutely fascinating. Totally. Everything from how they described it all like I had never thought about an ocean farm in terms of acres like it just opened up a whole new world for me. Before we dive in, I actually listened to a panel that was talking about this. So I just found it on YouTube as I was doing my research and they said something I think is really important. They said that um, this is not new. Indigenous people have long histories of harvesting and cultivating all along the coast. So it's not a new concept. Um, And they gave a moment and respect to the indigenous people and their way of life. And I just think we should do that in Discover Ag too. I think one of the notes I actually had is this is very popular, very common, obviously, in a lot of Asian cultures. This is something new in the United States and Europe, but it is not new to the world. Um, And one of the things that I found really interesting about this article was that uh, these communities were trying to figure out new ways, new forms of agriculture to stimulate their economies because their economies and their communities are really suffering. So growing kelp can actually work kind of as a buffer um, because they are experiencing dwindling salmon, uh, wild salmon populations, which is something, you know, we've talked about in previous articles. Um, You know, they did give kind of the mention to climate change in this article, which we talked about with the Georgia peaches. We were frustrated that that was the entire focus of the article. I liked how this one did exactly what we talked about. It did mention the challenges of climate change, challenges of, you know, that they used to have timber industries. They used to have all these other industries. industries that the indigenous people used to have that have unfortunately dwindled. Um, But then they really got into the human component of this and like how the people are adapting and, you know, 
I don't know, taking on this growing of kelp. This panel I watched, it was, um, I think was part of a conference. I'm not entirely sure, but there was four experts on there. And one of them was a representative from the Nature Conservancy in Alaska. And on the panel, he talked about exactly what you said is that, you know, Alaska is having this major decline in salmon. And yes, they hinted at kind of the changing climate. And he did a really good job of how he worded it on the panel. He said, you know, this is the way, you know, society is, climate is changing. And he said, we need to pivot. He said, I came to my family and said, we as a family and we as a, you know, um, society in that area, that community in Alaska, he said, we need to start looking to build blue green jobs that will build economies built on restoration and regeneration, which I thought was really great how he worded that. And he just talked a lot about how there are places in Alaska that are really losing their livelihoods and food. They re- they, I mean, they're connected to this as a food source as well. Um, that other places aren't. And so it's absolutely really cool. I think how seaweed kelp, which kelp is a form of seaweed. Um, there's actually like four colors of seaweed and kelp is, I think the brown one, but, um, I think it's really cool how they talked about how it could, you know, play a role in economic opportunity and local food security beyond just the environmental component of it. Yeah. So I guess that kind of teased me up. There's, there's a lot of different directions we could go, but that teased me up for the environmental component. Um, kelp is, kind of amazing. <laughs> Seaweed's kind of amazing. It does not require fertilizer and it absorbs carbon in addition to nitrogen as it grows. It does not technically sequester carbon, but it absorbs carbon and nitrogen. And then under ideal conditions, this absolutely blew my mind. It can grow up to 18 inches a day. It's one of the fastest growing species of plants in the world. Yeah, it's really cool. They focused on a couple different things it can do for the environment. So one of them, like you said, it can like basically soak up that carbon dioxide. It has the nitrogen, which it can help with like algae blooms. And then it's also really great at like creating essentially like a habitat, right? So the seaweed, they're talking about how it can create forage and refuge habitat for a lot of important fish and then help with like the diversity of marine life. So when we think about like trying to restore our oceans and like lift, you know, offset them or like take that burden off of them, seaweed could help with that too. Yeah, there's so many different uses for seaweed, like even being able to replace like plastics. And so there's a lot of money. It said like tens of millions of federal funds right now are currently being used to develop this market in Alaska specifically. Um, From a nutrition side, it's actually really nutritious for us. It has a ton of essential amino acids, omega-3 fatty acids, fiber, um, lots of different vitamins. And then actually from a cattle standpoint, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but we know that feeding seaweed to cattle can actually reduce their carbon footprint can reduce the methane, the enteric methane. And we talk about this in two episodes. So one of them is episode 79 with Kim Stackhouse. She gets into the research they're doing about feeding seaweed to cattle, as well as episode 71 with uh, Dr. Frank Mintlerner. So if you want to dive into that side of things, go check out those two podcasts. Yeah. So like you said, Alaska is really pushing for this. Um, they're, one of their representatives was quoted as saying that the sky's the limit because we have more coastline than the rest of the lower 48 put together. And so that's part of the reason. So freaking crazy. Did I like went back and reread that. I was like, did I read that wrong? I have that. I cannot believe Alaska's more coastline than everybody else. It's wild. Above that, I wrote crazy stat. <laughs> that was my crazy. my note. Crazy. <laughs> um, the other th- cool thing about it is or why Alaska is like suited for it and kind of it's like booming there as the headline, the title alluded to is that kelp needs cold water. And so Alaska's cold waters are like kind of really suited for this, whereas other places like New England and maybe the Mediterranean have the warm waters. And so I think that's why there's a lot of potential in Alaska, too. Yeah. Going back to how I never thought about like the ocean in terms of acres, I had 
never really considered that obviously this is another type of farming and they face actually a lot of similar challenges that we do, like logistics and transportation and all of those things, which is kind of like a duh. But I mean, if you haven't ever sat down and really thought about kelp production, you don't think about all the ins and outs. And and one of the things that I thought was interesting was they have to grow them on like lines. Like the, there's like tons and tons of lines. And they were like, if one gets tangled up, it's absolutely like a nightmare. And I was like, I can only imagine trying to untangle a rope in an ocean that has kelp growing on it. It's trying to like uh, herd baby calves or sort baby calves. It's just a mess. <laughs> this was another piece that was kind of beyond the agriculture is that we need to have more education for consumers on how to use it, how to cook with it. Like people, I think everyone thinks about seaweed as in like sushi, but there's obviously a lot more that you can do with it. If just like substituting it in your salad and things and we don't know what to do with it. But I feel like that's with any new product or new, and I hate to say new, obviously these different plants and, you know, different things have been around for decades, thousands of years, however long, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if we don't know how to cook with them, like you even talked about that on a podcast today that sometimes people are intimidated to cook with beef, like whatever you don't know or haven't grown up with can be intimidating and then you won't cook with it. Um, And so being able to like dive into some recipes or create some popular recipe books that were around seaweed. But yeah, we have some work to do, I think, as consumers. And I think it's absolutely on us. And and it, it just goes to show we're all in this, right? From the producers all the way down to the consumers. Absolutely. Before we move on to our second article, I want to thank another one of our amazing sponsors, Neutral, Eat Neutral. Uh, We have done some reels and some different things with them on um, our social channels where you can check them out more. But uh, Neutral is the first carbon neutral food company in the United States. Neutral's organic pasture-raised milk comes from small family farms and supports their mission of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture for good. Neutral partners directly with dairy farmers, which is my favorite thing about them to provide expert guidance and financial support for implementing climate smart practices on farms. If you are a farmer or rancher interested in partnering, visit their website, eatneutral.com and find neutral milk nationwide in Whole Foods, Sprouts and other natural retailers. Uh, When Daniel and I were vacationing in California, we found them at both Whole Foods and at Sprouts, like in the regular dairy aisle. So easy, easy to spot them. Uh, And we got to actually enjoy the neutral milk while we were there in California. I was just going to say, I'm a little jealous you've actually got to buy and try them because I do think they're a super cool, unique, innovative company. Um, And one thing I love about them beyond like what we just talked about, like what they're doing, you know, at the producer level, I think they're also really involved in the conversation level too. Um, I know they've been at Southwest themselves. I think they're actually submitted a panel this year too. And so I do think they're doing a lot to drive conversation around food. And I think they do a good job of like helping producers be a part of that conversation too. And if you want to hear more about it, we actually did an interview with them, episode 104. You can go listen to that. It's at the end of our three articles uh, where they dive a little deeper and tell us more about their company and how they got started. And we're hoping to have some more fun things planned with them in the future. So thank you, Neutral. All right, you guys, moving into our second article you need to know in the world of ag this week, title, Gwyneth Paltrow gave a tour of her refrigerator, and it's way less weird than I thought it would be. And I guess this wasn't really an article. I don't really have anything to major recap about it. It was more, she posted a reel on her wellness platform, Goop, and the article kind of showed the reel and then, like I guess, broke down thoughts about it is kind of what it was. 
Yeah, so this was actually sent in by a disco because they thought it was really exciting to see how much dairy was in the fridge as well as, um, you know, the different meats that she highlighted. Um, She had been a person that was previously like vegan vegetarian. So this is a pretty big shift for her to be showcasing that much animal protein in her fridge. And I don't know, you were kind of hesitant to cover it. And I just, it kind of brings me to my first point, like, it is a little bit of a trend. Like, that's why she did it. It's a trend for celebrities, influencers to show it in their fridge. And my thoughts were like, do we care? Should we care? Like, why? Why is this a trend? And kind of wanted to dive into that part of this conversation. We grew up with celebrity houses, MTV Cribs, and Gen totally. Z grows up with celebrity fridges, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, my initial thoughts, and I guess not my hesitation, but my thought was there is so much going on in the food and ag space that I am a little frustrated that these are what people are writing about. I mean, how many people has she influenced through her wellness platform? In the wrong way, right? And I think that's why I'm a little frustrated. Like, why do we care what's in Gwen's fridge? I think I get frustrated that wellness people have such an influence over the food space when they shouldn't. We should be listening to registered dietitians and producers. Yeah, Maddie, producer Maddie actually brings up a good t- point too that she's like, she's... Gwen had said, like, I cleaned out my fridge and made sure it, like, all looked aesthetically pleasing. But Maddie's point is, I'm sure they clean out anything that's not, like, on brand for them or doesn't work. And it actually gets into, like, yeah, is it even authentic what she had in there? Is that truly what she had? And then she was obviously trying to sell her product. Like, the there was a whole, like, sure, she talked about what milk she had in there. She had talked about that. But she was like, I also keep all of my goop skincare in my fridge because it's so good. And so, like... <clears throat> The goal of this was to sell her products. It wasn't necessarily to do anything. But that actually brings me to one other point that I found interesting is she got a lot of grief actually for what was in her fridge that was not on brand. And that was a lot of her condiments with like the very big like seed oil push. People were like, I can't believe she had salad dressing or like all of these. I mean, if you look at the fridge, it was like a normal American fridge, tons of condiments. And a lot of people had a lot to say about how quote unquote unhealthy that is. Yeah. Poor Gwyneth. That must be hard for her to get that backlash. It was, I think, after she sold all those products of goop while doing a video of her fridge. I think that we need to keep an account. A lot of comments said like, this is her second fridge. Like there's no way that's her only fridge. As a watcher of the Kardashians, <laughs> you guys, these people have celebrity chefs. So my actually thought was this is not her second fridge. This is her sole fridge. But she has someone probably come in and cook for her, if not four to five nights a week. This is all speculation. You guys, this is not on the record. Okay. But they're going to be bringing in fresh produce. They're going to be bringing in the meat they're cooking with. If they're making her salmon, they probably sourced it. They probably That celebrity chef probably stopped at the grocery store on the way, picked up the filet and cooked it. And so that's why to me, it made sense that she had like three rows of drinks, only condiments. And then she pulled out like, oh, I have a leftover veggie burger and a leftover chicken. Well, yeah, because that's what you had from the celebrity chef that made it last night. So it made sense to me that there was very little fresh produce in there because that's all going to be brought in anyway. 100%. So I actually have in here, like if you saw all of the leftovers, they were perfectly labeled. Who in their right mind like has time to go and label all of that the way it was? It was clearly like a chef had made it. That was their leftovers for lunch the next day or like probably not even leftovers. That's what they had prepared for lunch the next day. And it was in the fridge for her to take out. And it was like, this is what you're supposed to eat. And the, and you could do it was like perfectly portioned. I don't know. It just felt very chef like prepared for me. Um, But what was in the fridge was kind of wild, kind of getting back to that. 
She had butter, but then she had vegan butter. She had an entire dairy section, but then she had regular milk, almond milk, oat milk, macadamia nut milk. And the list went on of like very, what you would almost think of as like opposing food types. But it actually reminded me of a stat that I think is really interesting that over set, uh, sorry, over 90% of the people who buy plant-based milks also buy cow's milks. And it is very much looking at her fridge was a good reminder that sometimes it's not an either or it's a both. People don't just want cow's milk. They want cow's milk and macadamia nut milk and oat milk. And we can get really, I think animal protein, especially dairy can get really in our own heads about like, you better pick us over somebody else when really it's about food choice and that people just like a whole bunch of variety of different foods. Yeah. I mean, looking at the silver lining, the glass half full, like you said, it is nice to see that she was repping, did mention that she had regular milk. She did talk about, you know, chicken she had. And yes, as you said, it was odd because everything she mentioned did have the juxtaposition. It was like, literally she said, Oh, a leftover veggie burger and leftover chicken, you know? So, but it was nice to see as the disco sent it in for the beginning reason, it was nice to see her pull out and kind of mention those, um, you know, traditional, um, I guess, choices that a couple of years ago probably wouldn't have been caught dead in her fish or I mean in her fridge. And if it was in her fridge, she probably wouldn't have got, got caught dead talking about. And so I do think we've seen some progress that way. You know, they got a little got a little moment in Gwen's fridge, which I guess is good. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, before we got sent this from a disco, Daniel actually sent me a fridge of like, it was not a celebrity. It was like a regular person. It was a Midwest fridge. And they were like, tell me you're from the Midwest, basically without telling me. And it was a, a entire drawer in your refrigerator dedicated to cheese. Cheese. And I was like, oh, I totally want to do this. So it actually brings me to a point that I actually would love to see what's in our discos fridge. So because one of the things when I saw Gwyneth Paltrow's um, her jam that she has is the same brand as mine. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I use the same jam on my kids peanut butter and jelly as Gwyneth. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like the Costco one that you can buy in bulk. Um, but I was like, it'd be fun to see what other people have. Like, what cheeses are you eating? You know, how, where are you like, what steaks are you defrosting today? Like, I actually find that interesting more from a regular person to regular person thing than necessarily a celebrity trend. So open up your fridges, discos, tag us on Instagram. They're like, absolutely not. I feel like that's the most sacred space in the house. When you said, show me your like part of the Midwest without telling me, I thought it was going to be because there's Dorothy Lynch on the fridge, (laughs) which all my Midwest people will know exactly what Dorothy Lynch is and no one else in the I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. You're not Midwest and and that's okay. okay. All right, you guys. Well, moving into our third and final article you need to know this week in the world of ag title, Big Sugar Podcast Exposes How Subsidies in the Farm Bill Harm Us All. So this article um, talks about how host Celeste Headley wants the public to understand how decades old subsidies for sugar companies benefit billionaires at the expense of the environment, farm workers, and the nutrition of the nation. There is a lot to cover in this one, if I'm being honest, and I'm really glad we're covering it because I probably a year ago ended up down kind of the rabbit hole of um, sugar cane versus sugar beets, which is kind of like GMO versus non-GMO. And that's why you took a sojourn into the world. A sojourn. I did. I took a big sojourn, Eh, kind of a little sojourn, actually, into the world of (laughs) sugar. So this is an article about a podcast and the podcast has nine episodes and they're about 50 minutes each. So there's a lot to it. But I feel like it is a cross between talking about how sugarcane is harvested and they don't so far on the podcast that I'm listening to, they haven't got into the GMO side, but you could go into the GMO side. You go into the subsidies part. You could go into the human welfare part of this the environment like there is 
so much to this conversation. It was kind of hard for me to pick a place to start. Let's start with the podcast because I also started listening to it too. I only finished the first episode. But essentially, the podcast is to the way they word it to investigate the sugarcane industry. They're kind of diving into right now the Caribbean sugarcane cutters. And she's really interviewing a lot of them, a lot of the lawyers. Um, and we'll get into it. But it's it's controversial, right? I mean, that's why they're making a podcast out of it. I also have I'm on the second episode of the podcast. And I really enjoyed it. I think I will keep going and listening. But as I got about halfway through the first uh, episode. It felt a little to me, it was just kind of giving like cowspiracy vibes and some of our debunking, like very extreme. And so I stopped in the middle of it and thought, who would tell me the other side of this story? And I actually ended up on Mike Rose, How America Works. And he did an entire episode on Big Sugar. And I watched that. And it was a very like juxtaposition from theirs. So Personally, if you're going to listen to the podcast, I would also recommend maybe listening to Mike Rose or watching Mike Rose episode on Big Sugar. Um, because one of the things that I think we have to remember when listening to this podcast is it did take place 30 to 40 years ago. And things are different now. Um, a lot of it was like manual labor, like you had to cut sugar cane by hand. And on Mike Rose one, they are like in what looks like a combine, like processing sugar cane. So it just... Um, I don't know, not saying that what these people went through was not important and that I want to get into all that and the subsidies, but it was just kind of a good, I don't know, like modern refresher of maybe where we've come from and where we're at now. Micro, never heard of him. Ne Natalie's not obsessed with him. Micro, if you are listening, Natalie is obsessed with you. That is not going to help his case <laughs> of like wanting to get involved with us. So it's very healthy and normal. It's a micro, normal obsession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. Um, I mean, the podcast was the idea stemmed from a Vanity, Vanity Fair article that was written back in 2001. So you're right. What a lot of what they're highlighting talking about um, has changed since then. Again, not to degrade or knock on it. Um, I do think you're right. It's important. We were actually, well, on Valentine, I think she said that on that podcast. Like if you're going to do research on something, intentionally search out maybe the opposite so that you can like have a you know perspective that's presented to you that's maybe a little bit more balanced. One of the things I thought was interesting, though, is they asked Celeste, like, why now? You know, if this article was written in 20, 2001, that's over 20 years ago. Like, why now are you doing this podcast and, you know, drawing this attention? And she said that the most immediate peg is that the farm bill only comes up for reconsideration every five years. And it is up for reconsideration this year. And so I think that was one of the big things is that they want to bring attention. Again, there's so much that goes on in the food and ag space that we as consumers do not know about, do not think about, like it's not on our mind and yet it affects us whether we're putting it in our body or paying for it in this case. And so I think she really wanted to draw attention to it more from the subsidy farm bill standpoint than maybe even though it's very important to highlight what she talked about, like the civil rights, the inequity, the racism, all of that. Um, I do think there was a big push for more of the farm bill aspect of it. Yeah. So I think that's where I want to start is the farm bill subsidy side of it. And then maybe we can get into the immigrant workforce because I have some big thoughts about that as well. But um, just some numbers, there are only about 4,000 sugar producers in the United States, and I, that doesn't mean to discount them, but some of these, like some of the sugar producers that they're highlighting ha are billionaires. And um, there was one quote that was repeated multiple times that um, one of the producers has made over, makes about $65 million a year just in subsidies. And I think it just brings up the greater conversation around subsidies. We were talking about the shrimpers and um, on our episode of the shrimp and the Georgia peaches, how I was like, wow, I wish there was like some kind of like 
program to help the Georgia peach farmers, you know, through this really difficult year. And so I I do at my heart believe there is a place for subsidies and for crop insurance and things that if our farmers go through a really bad year, we don't want to lose them forever. We want them to be able to come back. But at the very flip side of this coin, I think there are issues with our subsidies that they, um, you know, I know of farmers and I've heard of farmers in our area that are basically farming for insurance, right? That they just, it, they know the crop isn't going to make it and yet they plan it every year to just be able to cl- claim those subsidies. And then also with that note, and then I'll let you jump in because I'm sure you're like chomping at the bit to say things like the subsidies of, you know, we're in the cattle market. So obviously we don't always feel great about subsidies towards ethanol. And I'm sure if you're a corn producer, you're yelling at me right now through your podcast, like subsidies are not straightforward, but I do think they have a time and place. But at the same time, there's some problems, I think. I do have a lot to say. I think I want to backtrack for a second, though, because I think there's people listening that probably aren't even familiar with what subsidies are. I think we should quickly break that down. And then I also want to talk about the, I think, the introduction of subsidies in the sugar, how that got started and what makes them unique, because I think that's Mm, really, really important. Yes. So by definition, subsidies are financial benefits provided by the government to a specific industry or organization. So these Benefits could include loan guarantees, tax concessions, stock purchases, or cash subsidies. Um, And as you could assume, they are basically there for the government wanting to promote through production and consumption. So they're very common things like housing, agriculture, oil, um, list goes on. So in this case, we're going to be talking about subsidies for the sugar industry. Now, if you're unfamiliar with agriculture, not every single food production in agriculture is subsidized. So when you hear people talk about, you know, subsidizing the food industry and how, you know, it's all subsidized, that is not true. Not everything is subsidized, correct? Correct. What got started for the sugar subsidy? It goes back to the 1981 farm bill. Um, They talk about how federal support for sugar production goes back to like as far as the colonial era. But in modern history, they say that 1981 farm bill is really the origin of our current system. And it includes loans for both sugar beet and sugar cane production. Um, It includes limits on imports and a target price. And the thing that is really different and unique about uh, sugar subsidies is that like unlike other commodity programs, so like corn and soybeans, which are also subsidized, uh, farmers get the payments in those industries. But what's different with the sugar is that it's the processors who get the benefits. And I think that is a big, big distinction. Some of the things that are a little bit different also about um, this subsidies is the limited imports, which you mentioned, but that is very unique. Most subsidies do not, most farm bills don't get into like limiting imports. You actually want to have import exportation because of the global markets. So that is like a, a, a unique piece to this as well. And then our price in the United States for sugar is typically double what it is on the world market, which is a massive difference. So in a lot of cases, the federal government isn't actually paying like the price of the subsidies. In some cases, it's actually just your American dollar at the grocery store. Sugar is more expensive and sugar is in like a lot of foods, like a lot of processed, you know, if it's not a whole food, chances are it has sugar added to it. And so those are some big differences that Americans actually are paying the cost directly instead of like indirectly through your taxes. 
And then getting to that conversation, you know, kind of about the immigrant workforce, um, it was actually something Daniel and I talked about when we were in California. I mentioned last week on the podcast that we saw Bill Gates' house and Daniel and I were walking and they were doing like the like the gardening or the landscaping around these houses. And it was a lot of obvious like immigrant workers. And just as you said, that juxtaposition of like it, Bill Gates' house is the most expensive house that has ever sold in San Diego County. And then to see like the people caring for, you know, his lawns and and thinking Daniel and I took it even a step further, the people in hospitality, the people out picking the, the fields out in California and just that um, like massive disparity between the two is kind of wild to see. And this talked a lot about that. I think what I found really interesting, and I guess my takeaway from this a little bit is, do we need to subsidize sugar? I actually ended up on, uh, I think it was Indiana's Sugar Growers um, Association. And they were talking like reasons we should subsidize sugar. Like, obviously, I've gotten that question. You know, they have a whole website prepared for it. And they were saying that sugar is the core component of the American food industry. Nearly 60% of food items purchased in grocery stores contain some form of added sugar. Um, So a rift in the sugar industry would impact over half of all American food items. But I'm like, do we need that much sugar, right? Like, would it be bad if not 60% of the food in our society didn't have sugar in it? Um, I listened to a fascinating podcast that was talking about how basically you know, big bag food, which is what a lot of people would call it. But these larger, you know, food giants kind of exploited sugar addictions from us as Americans. I think we can all kind of agree on that. They actually talked about what are called bliss points. And they did research to find the perfect amount of sugar. He talked about it as like a bell-shaped curve. So at one end, it's too low a sugar. We don't like it. One end, it's too high. We don't like it. And every type of food has its own bliss point of sugar. And they also looked at it for like fats and different things like carbohydrates too of what they did to our food system. And it was just really interesting. But that's how we got sugar into things like bread and spaghetti sauce and yogurts and like a lot of these things that maybe don't need sugar. So it's like, does it need to be subsidized? Do we need it that much? I don't know. These are some big picture questions. I have to agree with you. That's where I kept going with my mind was like, do we need to subsidize sugar? And you know what's crazy? Talking about it in our diets, we um, I always see this meme by a lot of registered dietitians and others in this space that's like, we blame modern, um, what would it be, like modern health conditions on like historical food. So like saying like red meat causes heart disease. We've been eating red meat forever. We have barely been eating sugar for only like the last century. And that is it. And when you think about like, you know, the health impacts of what's going on in our society and how many like underlying conditions people have, it's like, why do we blame foods we've been eating forever and maybe not looking to foods that are now in, like you said, 60% of foods have sugar added to them. Like it is kind of wild. And so that was really where I kept going. I will give one fair like warning. (laughs) Do not Google sugar, money and sugar. Be really careful. I did not know what I was doing last night when I was researching this. And uh, apparently I typed in some things that led me down some very different directions. So just a word for the wise. That's a different type of sojourn. <laughs> yeah, very different sojourn, uh, money and sugar. Mm. sugar Lots sojourn. of options out there in the sugar money world, I'll tell you that much. So maybe we'll continue listening to the podcast, finish out the episodes, and we could kind of continue to give our thoughts over on the Discover Ag page. I will say I learned a lot about the sugar industry um, that I did not know. And we already 
you know, said this, but we don't want to speak for, you know, if you are a producer of sugar cane or of sugar beets, please DM us um, your thoughts. We would love to have actual, you know, people who are producing this, their experiences, their um, kind of, you know, through the lens of an actual producer of this and kind of let us know what you see good about your industry, what you see bad, like where you fall on all of this. And obviously we always keep it private. So. Uh, yeah, I feel like I could go on for another 20 minutes about all the things I learned. Like I have so many notes from this. So it is it is fascinating. It's a part of agriculture. Um, as Natalie always talk and I always talk about that we don't necessarily think of or see or get ex- exposed to. And actually, one of the biggest takeaways I felt like from this article was people there was a quote that said people don't pay attention to the farm bill. And I think that is kind of true. And this was they were trying to highlight a piece of the farm bill that might interest people and bring some attention to what goes on in that. And um I, I guess I appreciated that portion of this article of like, there's a lot in the wor- world of food and ag and, um, you know, we should, we should be paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. I don't think I had a problem with this article at all, but I'm also not a sugar cane or sugar beet producer. Totally. <laughs> I would love to have a sugar beets person come in because, um, sugar beets, since they are a GMO, get a lot of grief and, uh, they actually solve a lot of the problems like environment. I say problems. I kind of use that in air quotes, like solve a lot of the things that people are complaining about from the environmental side, as well as the, um, like the workforce side, the labor side. Um, so I don't know that everyone, I, I think there would be a range of feelings, um, across the industry, probably on this article, actually. Um, I definitely something you and I are having some conversations uh, with some companies um, in the kind of like sugar ish world um, about maybe partnering and doing some mini interviews with and I really hope that we get to bring that to you guys because I think there's more here to uncover. All right. Well, that's all we have for you guys this week. We will see you next week.